Welcome to the broadcast. This is Michael Easley in Context, and it's my pleasure to have Dr. Meg Meeker on the broadcast. She's been on our program before. She has written some fabulous books. The first book of hers that I read, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters, really revolutionized the way I tried to parent three girls with my four kids. Later, boys will be boys, so let them be and others. When Cindy and I were with the Family Life Weekend to Remember conferences and parenting conferences, we often reference Dr. Meeker's books. She is a global leading authority on child-father relationships. She's got 30 years' experience as a pediatrician along with her husband. She has authored a number of best-selling books. Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters was turned into a movie. She also has a podcast called Parenting Great Kids. She's done a TED Talk. On and on it goes, but the main thing is I just Love Dr. Meeker as a friend and a, and a co-laborer in the war. So thanks for coming on the on the program. Oh, I'm very happy to. Thanks for having me, Michael. It's nice to see you again. Great to see you. It's been a while. We reached out to our little audience and said, okay, give us some questions that you'd like us to ask Dr. Meeker. So the first one was, how do I handle sibling fighting? I mean, sibling rivalry is so rare, isn't it, Meg? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. I was thinking about this morning because my 10 and 8-year-old grandkids, it drives me crazy when they fight. <laughs> just bothers me so much. And I think that there are a couple of things. Many siblings are going to fight. You know, they're going to fight verbally. They're going to fight physically. Boys tend to fight physically. Yeah. And often what will happen is they'll start wrestling. They're having fun. They're giggling. And you just wait. And, you, and then the tears will start. And so I think it's important for parents to sit down when the kids aren't fighting and say, you know, guys, you know, I know you're going to disagree. And I know you're going to fight. And I'm going to let you work it out. However, there are some rules. You can't say mean things or call bad names. You can't hurt each other physically. And you can't break any stuff in the house. Other than that, <laughs> if I find that you're being mean and you're hurting each other, I'm going to have to separate you. And if they're older, I'd separate them for half a day. Because sometimes what happens is there's a kid in the family has a little more than just sibling rivalry. They're a bully. Yeah. And when you see that, you really have to crack down on that kid. Also, if you find that fighting is frequent and getting out of control, I would sort of ask along the way, is there anything underneath it that's sort of driving it? If you have a child who's a bully and they're constantly hammering on all the other kids in the home, you really need to try to figure out what's at the root of that. But that's a little deeper than just sibling yeah. rivalry. But sibling rivalry in general, I apply those three rules. And other than that, I try to let the kids work it out. And, of course, Cindy and I have been around a lot of parents with kids. and Adopted children are different, the attachment issues, attachment disorder, and so forth. But some of the designations and diagnostics make me a little tremulous, but they're also mm -hmm. helpful. We had an ODD child, and that was a very interesting learning cliff for us, mm -hmm. different than strong-willed. And mm -hmm. so when you have an ODD that's, you say, bully, that's really over the top, do they need to get help? Do they need to talk to someone who might give them a few sessions and say, this is how you kind of uh, give landlines or guardrails, rather, for this child? Mm -hmm. I would encourage the parents to talk to somebody because a counselor can talk to the child, but they're not going to get through to the child like the parents will. Plus, sure. they're not there day to day to day. Kids with ODD, 
kids with severe ADHD and some kids on the spectrum yeah. will explode. Yes. And they have these episodes, they're out of control, they're hurting people around them, and you think, what has just happened? This is normal fighting. And so I think it is important for the parents to find a good counselor and say, you know, what are some coping mechanisms? How can I set up some safe, simple boundaries for this child? And I think the most important thing to do is set up one at a time and really make the child obey that boundary and then move on to another one, another one. But that's a real challenge. That's it's, a real challenge. It's hard. It's hard. A little easier one, perhaps. How do you discourage bad behavior while validating the feelings, in this case, of a three-year-old? Three-year-olds in general are pretty happy kids, so it's pretty easy to <laughs> validate their feelings. Here's one of the traps that parents fall into, and I see this with younger kids. Parents are so eager to make sure that the child is happy all the time. They don't want any conflict. They don't want any negativity to come in the home. And what that translates into being kind and nice Say a child, a three-year-old goes over and pulls the dog's tail and the dog scream, you know, barks, is to say, oh, you know, it's not good. That hurts the dog. You really can't do that. So the next time, just pat the dog. That doesn't work for a three-year-old. Three-year-olds can't understand that complexity of talk. For a three-year-old, you have to say no in the moment. No, in the moment, they're going to cry. They're going to be upset. A half hour later, you go back and say, you know what? Can't pull the dog's tail. Let's go out and have some fun. So you don't need to validate the feelings in the moment. You have to reprimand in the moment because what you're doing is you're setting boundaries for your child. And the yes. child is going to hurt themselves. They don't have boundaries. They need to be able to listen to you when you say no, or they're going to get really hurt. And in that moment, you're not going to make the child happy, so don't worry about it. Being upset and being reprimanded is part of life. You and I are reprimanded and get upset, but you set your child up for a miserable life if you're constantly trying to make everything in their life positive, because it isn't positive. And so parents need to set boundaries for the kids. The other thing they're teaching their kids in strong discipline is self-control. And that's a very important skill for kids as they get older into their teen years and certainly for adults. When I see a dog, I can't pull the tail. Okay, I'll walk away. But the child's not going to do that if you explain them to them and tell them that the dog really likes to be petted. So don't overuse words. Don't worry about their feeling positive in the moment. They're not going to. But you need to, you know, crack down and say no and then go back half hour, an hour later, and go have some fun with the child. Okay, let's amplify this because in a family of two or three kids, let's put that three-year-old somewhere in the middle, and you've got the firstborn and not to be cliche, more compliant perhaps child, and the three-year-old's a little bit more of a tumbler and, you know, bouncing around through life, and then someone younger. So now I'm parenting cross-intellectual ability, vocabulary ability, so help me out. Same situation, but this mom or mom and dad have got three or four kids in that situation. Yeah. Well, you have to discipline each child according to their age. And in a general rule of thumb is the younger the child, the quicker the discipline. Mm. If you say to a three-year-old, 
you know, I'm going to wait to reprimand you from what you did in the grocery store until we get home. By the time you get home, that kid's not going to remember what you did. A 10-year-old will. So you discipline kids very differently. A one-year-old, you're just going to pick up and move because they don't necessarily understand no. A three-year-old, you're going to look them in the eye, you get on eye level, hands on the shoulders, say, no, you can't do it. Then you have an older child, a five or six-year-old, who really knows the rules and you cracked on, on them again and then they get sent to their room or, you know, so they're different there are different penalties according to the age of the child. I wrote a whole course called Simple Discipline That Works, and I break mm. down the ages and what you should reprimand for and what you shouldn't reprimand for, and then what the consequences should be. Okay. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes. That'd be helpful for our folks to, to be able to access that. Let me move on because we got some more questions. My oldest daughter asked, based on some of her friends and relationships, there's this gentle respectful parenting that's it's kind of trending right now. And it says, uh, help parents who are into this positive, gentle, respectful, what are the terms? How does that translate? Is there? I mean, you already alluded to it. There's time to say no, and there's a consequence, but are we being too kind? Yes. <laughs> Short answer. <laughs> Next question. <laughs> Here, here's, the, here's the problem, and, and I hear this from teenagers all the time. When you are constantly positive and kind, Kids don't feel you love them, and they feel that, yeah, they don't feel you love them. It's very interesting. They did a study on men in their 20s in prison, and they looked for a common thread in all the men, and it wasn't socioeconomics, it wasn't race, but all the men said, the majority of men said, when I was young, no one cared enough to say, no, wow. stop it. Wow. So kids they're sort of like bowling balls going down an alley. If you don't have bumpers in the lanes, they're going to go in the gutter every single time. But if you want your child to go in the straight down the, the lane and get a straight, you have to have bumper pads they run into. That doesn't feel good. And so I think that parents are doing positive and gentle parenting, not for the kid, but for themselves. Again, mm -hmm. They don't want conflict. They want their child to always have a positive experience. But you and I know the way you learn in life is through pain. Now, I'm not saying yeah. parents should inflict pain on their child, but a child who is taught, no, here's as far as you can go, kid. If you do that again or you call me a name, this is what's going to happen, makes kids feel safe. But when you're too gentle and you're too kind... Honestly and truly, I've seen this so many times. Kids don't feel loved because rules make kids feel loved. They feel secure because they know you're in charge. Parent is in charge. Parent isn't there just to, you know, give them pizza every night because that's what they like. You know, life is filled with conflict and healthy conflict. Sometimes the way parents grow in their relationship with their kids is through conflict. So I tell parents, walk into it and show your kids how to understand that there are certain things they can and can't do. And sometimes when they bump into the bumper, it's going to hurt. That's the way it is. Don't soften it. Kids will disrespect that and they won't feel secure. Your comment about the young men in prison, and I live with chronic pain and wine, 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 five back surgeries and so forth. And I have come to the conclusion, Meg, I don't learn apart from pain. That, you know, when things are going well and I'm happy and there's enough money in the bank and Cindy and I are getting along swimmingly and all my kids are, you know, wonderful and love Jesus, I'm pretty apathetic 
candidly. But when there's a, you know, God allows pain, discomfort, disappointment, disillusionment, that's when I, I mean, I can go away from him, but that's when I need him. And that's when I'm more supple to learn. Yes, no? Yes, absolutely. And I think that parents recognize that in themselves, but they don't want their kids to go through that. And they don't want their kids to go through it again because they believe their role is first and foremost to keep the child happy all the time. And that's a huge disservice to kids because you don't teach your kids resilience if they're happy all the time. And what ends up happening is that the older the child gets, mom and dad come in and they fill in the holes and they make life okay and they make sure that the child's project is perfect so they get an A and they make sure they talk to the coach and make sure that he starts on the team. Huge disservice. So teach your kids resilience and the only way you teach them resilience is to Walk in struggle with them. I guarantee you that's when you'll have deep, resilient, healthy, strong kids. Other than that, you're going to raise a child who grows up and is miserable if you focus on positive feelings all the time. This one is a big question, but you're the doctor, so you can distill it. (laughs) Sometimes parenting is overwhelming. Hmm, Okay. It feels like there are a hundred things that need to be done to raise a healthy, whole, God-fearing child. Obviously, every parent and child is different, but is there a piece of universal advice, one thing you would focus on and tell a mom or dad? Yes, and I love this because, (laughs) you know, I've taken care of a whole generation of kids in my pediatric practice, and now I'm taking care of their kids. And so it's really, really fun. I've seen a lot of this. Parents worry about way too many things. Everything. Everything. And they not they need to get off the internet and they need to get off uh, all these blogs that have not very good information. A lot of it's wrong information. Only look to Dr. And, Meeker for parenting advice. Stop all the notes. Well, I, I, I'm a little biased. I've been at this a long time. But what parents need to do is focus on the big stuff. Imagine you have three circles. At, at the center of the circle, the core, is relationships. Mom, dad, kids, God. The second circle on the outside is important things we do, school, athletics, work. And then on the outside, it's, you know, fun, food, social Mm -hmm. media. We tend to focus on that outside ring and just troubleshoot all the time. But kids are born for relationship, and that's what makes them strong. So if you want to be a great parent, forget everything else and give them four things. And even if you give them only two, your kid's going to fly. All Mm -hmm. kids need this. The first thing is they need affection. Parents are so busy, they don't touch their kids. They don't look at them in the eye. They don't hug their kids. They don't put them to bed at night. And kids are craving affection. Teenage girls are craving affection. They need acceptance. You know, kids feel that they have to jump through so many hoops and get so many A's to be accepted by their parents. They need attention. We are not paying attention to our kids, and that's a huge reason that a lot of the depression anxiety is going up. When you walk through a store, you go in a restaurant, watch the parents, just pay attention. They're all looking down at their phones. When a parent is looking down at a phone, the child feels invisible. We have a lot of kids out there who feel invisible. We're not paying attention. And we need to be paying attention. Without that, 
as I said, they feel that they're not wanted, they're not loved. And I think if we really start to, you know, focus on that and, and just make a point every day of twice a day with every child, a person in your home, look them in the eye twice a day for a couple of minutes. Even doing something like that can be a, mm-hmm. a challenge for a yeah. lot of parents. Yeah. What I'm saying, I guess, is if you focus on the big things, you focus on that center core, you focus on those relationships, don't worry about the car seat or the medicine or the immunized. Don't worry about all that other stuff. Just focus on the big stuff and your kids will do great. Review those three circles one more time. I love that. The center circle is the deepest part of who we are and our deepest needs, our relationship with one another, family, and our relationship with our parents, our relationship with God. That's where our lives should be and all and our energy there. Okay. The second circle out is the important things that we need to do to keep alive. We need to go to school. We need to work. You know, things we need to do that are important to us, pursue missions, whatever. And then the outer circle, which is where most parents focus their energy and time, is on entertainment and superficial things kids should do. Should I have a cell phone? Should I not have a cell phone? What should you do with this? What should you do with that? What about this friend? What about the boyfriend? What about... You know, and we end up troubleshooting on the outer circle because we're not focusing on the inner. And imagine, again, those circles, if you took the center out and you pulled it out, that'd be a hollow kid. I mean, there'd be nothing there. And then if you want to go a little further and you put that center back in and you you light it up like a light bulb because Christ is there, Mm -hmm. it overpowers everything. So... I was privileged to uh, sit under Howard Hendricks' teaching when I was in seminary and many, many years after as a friend and mentor. One of the things he said late in life, Megan, it was striking. I mean, he wrote the book called The Christian Home. He developed the first class ostensibly in the United States on the Christian home and a little book called Heaven Help the Home. And I mean, this you had you know Dr. Spock was about the only child textbook you had in those days. And so he was speaking, and this is pre-Dobson, he's speaking into this, and he made the statement probably in his 70s or early 80s, he said, I think we've overstated the family, meaning we have worshipped children, we've worshipped the home, we've worshipped child-rearing, as opposed to who you are in Christ and how that really has the greatest impact. Do your kids see your walk with Christ? Do they see your marriage and how you and your wife get along as a Christian husband and wife? Thoughts on that? Oh, absolutely. I think that I would take that a step further and say that with all this attention and focus on making sure our kids happy and supplying this and supplying that, our kids have become idols. Our kids sit at the center of the home and everybody does a dance around them to make sure they're okay all the time and happy. And that's a terrible thing because when the child becomes the center of the home, they have control that makes them miserable. They see that all they have to do is start to cry and mom or dad will run to them and give them whatever they want. It's too much power for a child. But if a child is taken out of the center, God is in the center and mom and dad are right there with God then the child feels very, very secure. And that's the way God intended it to be. I see this with a lot of youngsters and with mothers, and they're trained to believe from the time they're pregnant that they are that child's 
everything. Mm. Many, many women will leave the bedroom for a year and sleep with the child in one room and dad is in the other. And the message that gives even to a little infant is that I have this power. I can move my mom and dad out of the bedroom. And that's a horrible thing to do yeah. to a child. A child wants to be second or third in the home. They don't want to be God in the home. Yeah. And it's a horrible thing to do to kids is to make them idols. When you look back on, and I love the fact that you're uh, now seeing your pediatric kids become parents, two or three things that were the biggest change. When you were a young pediatrician in your 30s and who you were, your patients were, and then now when you're watching as a grandparent, what have been the big two, three things that are the most striking to Dr. Meeker? Well, that's a great question. I think the most striking thing is the surge of mental illness in kids, which has really come in the past 15 years. Very disturbing to me. I could see this kind of happening. Phones, social media, and this disconnection that kids have with their parents. And I will say, we got to call parents to task here too. Parents are on their phones as much, if not more, than their kids. And when you drive that wedge between parents and their kids, kids, again, they feel invisible, they feel isolated, they feel lonely, they don't have healthy relationships with anybody. And so I, I think that when I see that, my work has gotten so much harder than it used to wow. be, so much harder, because I've literally seen, Michael, kids who've come in and have tried to commit suicide, and they admit to me that social media played into it. They'll admit that because they just felt bad about themselves all the time, flipping through Instagram, Instagram. And I tell the mom, I say, they've got to get rid of that. Well, she won't. Yeah. then put the phone in the driveway and run it over with your car. I mean, <laughs> if something is driving my kid to Throw do it that, out. <laughs> and then they don't come back and see him anymore. No, but but those are, the, those are the, the, the biggest challenges that I have as a pediatrician. And then the anxiety and depression in kids because, you know, it's multifactorial, but they're lonely, they feel isolated, they're disconnected, they don't know where they fit. They don't have healthy relationships. Parents aren't showing them who God is. And all of this combined together, kids can't handle life when it becomes that way. I never saw that 15, 20, 30 years ago. Never saw it. And that saddens me because a lot of friends say, why don't you, why don't you start backing off? I said, I can't because, you know, life is getting harder for these kids. And a lot of the younger pediatricians, I'm not criticizing them, don't know how to handle it. Yeah. They don't want to go in and tell parents, you got to knock this off. Yeah. You, you can't do that anymore because this is what's going to happen to your kid in three or four years. And so they're big, big challenges. The transgender issues, huge challenge for pediatricians. Well, since you bring that up, one of the questions was a parent has a child that is kind of leaning towards, I think I'm trans. Talk to the parent a little bit. And if that child was in your office, what would you say? first to the parent and then to the patient? Well, I do see this. First of all, no child, zero, should be transitioned ever under 21, ever, ever, because their brain isn't developed. They don't even know what they want to eat for dinner, let alone whether they should be a boy or a girl. Boys and girls very naturally go through periods where they think, gee whiz, 
our daughter did this. She only went to a barber for a year and a half when she was in sixth grade because she thought boys really have it all over girls. Let her go to the barber. You know, let her play with boys. Let her wear Army-Navy clothes, whatever. And then the kids all come out of that. But what happens is parents get so afraid Oh, my child said, you know, they think that they want to be a boy or they think they want to be a girl. What's the matter, doctor? You know, they're just feeling that way for now. So let them ride it out. We also have, so what I would tell the parent is this, right in front of the child. I understand you have these feelings. They're just feelings. You know, most of them pass. And so what I want you to do is just kind of ride with it. And if when you're older, those feelings stay, we'll talk about it later. Transitioning children is dangerous. Giving hormones to young children has effects on their bone. It has effects on their brain. To take breasts or a penis off of a child is malpractice. And we will see a lot, a lot of lawsuits in the next 10 years because these kids who've been transitioned will hit their mid-20s and say, what were you thinking? 85% of kids who have feelings that they want to transition during their teen years or young adult, 85 plus percent of those identify with their gender of origin when they're in their 25. Kids who transition, however, have a much higher rate of suicide after they've transitioned. So parents need to say, I get it. You know, you're having these feelings, but we're just going to, you know, we're not going to transition. We're not going to do anything. Think about this. The number of kids who have wanted to transition 10 years ago was 0.01%. Now it's up in like about 15%. It has increased 4,000%. Now there isn't any illness out there that all of a sudden increases 4,000%. So there's a fad. Yeah. It's a fad. And it's a fad that the the doctors and parents who always want kids happy so they want to affirm how they feel this is the destruction that it leads them into it leads them into very very serious problems i had a 13 year old in my office who i knew from birth terrible life terrible life drugs everything well, and it, it goes back to your comment about social media fueling so much of this because apart from social media we would not have seen a four thousand percent increase let me turn the heat up on that question a bit what if it's a, an adult son so now this child is older than 21 and they come to you and say mom and dad i think i'm going to transition mm-hmm. well that's very painful the difficulty there is legally he can do whatever he wants i would sit down and i would show him some medical data there's fabulous medical data that everybody should know about. It's on the Institute for Research and Evaluation. And put that link on your website. It's five questions parents should know about transgender. It goes through hundreds of papers of the research to show that it doesn't lead people to feel better. And that at the root of the pain that the person is feeling who wants to transition is something other than gender dysphoria. Mm -hmm. And we do kids a huge disservice, 25-year-old, 35-year-old, to say, you're in pain and you believe that your pain will be alleviated with hormones and sex change. And I need to tell you, it won't. So before you even think about transitioning, would you do me a favor and go to a really good counselor and be careful there because 
counselors are told and physicians are told that we have to affirm gender dysphoria. And so there's insane. Help the child, help the adult get to the root of the pain. The pain doesn't have anything to do with gender dysphoria because the pain doesn't go away after the transition. So those are the adult conversations that I would have. Bottom line is, if that kid looks at you and said, Mom, I don't believe in God. I don't think God really made me a man. I think he made me a woman. I'm going to go do that. If you've said your piece, there's nothing you can do. Yeah, yeah. It's hard to let them make those decisions. And as as parents and grandparents, you know, you the sun rises and sets on, am I a lousy father, a good father, a decent father? And then, you know, the byproduct is these these people are free agents. I tell parents all the right. time, your child is a free agent. You're free the guardrail until a certain mm-hmm. point, probably when you give them a set of car keys, you're the yep. guardrail. And once you yep. give them the keys, literally or metaphorically, they're going to make decisions you don't yeah. like. And, that's, and if I could follow up on that, please. you think about that three-year-old. Okay, that three-year-old who mom always wanted to be happy and want to explain and don't pull that dog's tail next time, try to pat them. If you don't teach that child self-control and you don't teach that child how to obey laws and respect laws, and then you give that 16-year-old car keys, he could kill himself. Yeah, yeah, or others. The child has to know laws and boundaries and that not adhering to laws and boundaries hurts and it can kill him. Your interest in uh, fathering and uh, strong daughter, strong father, I'm sure, was incipient. In fact, if, if you don't mind, your personal story, I loved so much when you told in that book about your dad, you overhearing him on a phone call mm-hmm. when you were applying to med school. If you wouldn't mind sharing that, I think I think uh, folks, if they haven't read the book, would love that story. Yeah, I would love to. And the point of the book and the point of that sentence is that A dad has a power in a daughter's life and in a son's life he has no idea he has. And one sentence, one look, one activity, and this is why I hone in the attention and the affection and the acceptance, can change that child's life. When I was 16, I decided I was going to medical school. That was it. No partying, nothing. I studied. I went to an all-women's college. And at the end of college, I applied to 20-some medical schools, didn't get into anyone. And I went home and I thought, that's it. My life is over. I have no plan B. <laughs> and I was walking in my house and I heard my dad, who was a very introverted man, on the telephone. And I walked by his study door, which was closed, and I overheard my name. And I heard my dad say, yes, my daughter Meg will be going to medical school in the next couple of years. And I was stunned. I was stunned. And In that moment, because my dad said it, I knew it was going to happen. Now, I adored my mother, but my mother would say to me, don't worry, honey, you're going to get in. Don't worry, honey, it's going to be okay. Don't worry. (laughs) It's all going to work out. (laughs) But she had to say that she was my mom. And that's how all kids think. You know, your mom has to be nice. Your mom has to encourage you. But in a way, we have this respect and fear of our fathers that they don't have to say that. But when they do, it will happen. And yeah. in that moment, the confidence that gave me, as I said, doggone, I'm getting right back in there. <laughs> and of course, the next year I went to medical school. And you know, Mike, I've written seven books. And at the beginning of every single book, I feel 
I have nothing to say. Nothing to say. My publisher was way off base in asking me to write this book. And you know what? <laughs> I remember my dad's words. You are going to write yeah. a book in the next year or two. And so that's power. Yes. And, and, and what I try to tell dads is that's one sentence. And so that's why, you know, you focus on the big stuff and, you know, giving your child that kind of affirmation and paying attention and watching. And my dad wasn't a PhD psychologist and he, he had his demons he fought, but he was good enough and he'd got the big stuff right. Yeah. And that, that was good enough. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I'm 66 and uh, proud of it. And the number of my peer men who I'm very, very close to, closer than a brother, they all lacked their father's approval. They lacked, you know, they didn't hear their dad say, I'm proud of you. And in a way, I think a lot of us overcompensated, <laughs> you know, like, you know, I, I can still, Hannah, of course, hears all this, but I, I can still remember, you know, indoctrinating her. You're smart. You're the smartest kid. You are so smart. I can't believe how smart you are. And then she became a smart aleck. So anyway, but uh, we have a lot of fun with that. But but the idea of that empowering voice, you know, we, we greatly overestimate what a negative comment will do, and oh, yeah. we underestimate what a you know, positive, encouraging, you can do this. And, yeah. and not in the notion you can do whatever you want to be nonsense. Right. But, you know, I really see you're wired in these ways. And isn't that the point of parenting? Each of our kids is as unique as a fingerprint. And this yeah. child is more skilled in math and science. This child has a hard time academically. But, boy, they're good with people. They're good with space. They're good with context, whatever. This one's merciful and kind that takes initiative. This one, not so much. And so you're trying to find that spark, right? And fan the flame to say, how do you help that young boy or girl see a future for how God would use them, who they are? Yeah. It goes back to the circles again. Yeah. You know, at the center of the life is not encouraging them to be a great piano player or great athletes. It's about saying, you're created for a purpose, and my job as your dad is to help you find that purpose. And I believe in you. I love you because you're my son. God loves you as his son. He loves me as his son. And nothing that you can do will ever shake my love for you. Now, you're going to fail at some things, be good at some things, be bad at some things. But it's okay. That's the way it is. The thing I think that bothers people about what I said in the book, Strong Fathers, Strong Daughters, which is still, still very, very popular, yeah. women in particular, is that when mothers say something to kids, it's different than when a dad yeah. says it to them. But everybody listening to me knows that's true, but they don't want to they admit it. They don't like it. it. Yeah, they don't like it. Yeah, they don't want to admit it. And yeah. that's why all the dads out there listening need to understand that there is a hole in your child's heart for God, but there's also holding in there for you, whether it's a son or a daughter. And how many 56-year-old men who you find out they're working, 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 working to make more money to make their dad happy, even though their dad may be dead. It yeah. drives a person. And every person takes one man to their grave. It's their dad. It's their dad because they want that approval, you know, from their dad. And dads don't know this, you know, and that's why, Michael, I feel so strongly about encouraging dads. And, and now what I'm starting is doing online coaching with just men to say, not to tell dads what to do, but say, here's how your kids see you. 
I'm not a dad expert, but I'm a kid expert. And if you could see how your kids see you and what they want, all they want is for your dad to overhear you talking on the phone about how competent they are. They just want to overhear you talking to somebody about how strong they are, how patient they are, and that, man, you're an amazing person. That's it. And that yeah. changes that kid's life. So, Well, and I go back to the, the bigger theological construct, God the Father and the Son. I don't think that's just a metaphor or an, an idiom, but there, there's a power there that understood well, hopefully we, as dads, we do it right sometimes, you know, but the encouragement, even with my adult daughters today, I think a word of encouragement for me means more to them in some respects. Yeah. I told a story about my son, I forget how old he was, but I was at home back in the day when we got newspapers delivered and I had gotten home from, a, you know, taking my suit off, had my jeans on. I was sitting there with my glass iced tea, my newspapers. I used to get a couple of papers, the Washington Post and the Journal when we lived up in D.C. And I'm flipping through the paper, having my iced tea, waiting for, you know, for dinner. And Cindy was incredible mom. We had family dinners almost every night. And she really was tenacious about that. But he's arguing with her and it's elevating. And I'm in the other room just listening, and I don't even get out of my chair, Meg. I just put the paper down, and I say, son, are you arguing with your mother? And he muttered some, I, you know, I said, no. Are you, ar-? I wanted to hear a clear response, yes. I said, when you argue with your mother, who are you really arguing with? And he mumbled something, and I asked again. He said, you. I said, right. I said, do you want to argue with me? And he says, That's it. Mumbled something. I said, Excuse me? He mumbled something. No. I said, What do you need to do? I mumbled something and I asked again, Apologize. I said, I want to hear it. Sorry. I said, Excuse me. I want to hear it. What do you need to? And, you know, it took a few minutes and he finally says, Mom, I'm sorry for being disrespectful to you. And and then I told the story. I never got out of my chair. There you go. You know, fathers fathers have a power in a teenage boy's life that a mother can't have. Mothers can't control a raging teenage boy. That's hard for dads, too. Yeah, It is hard for dads. But remember what happened, I don't know if it was a year or so ago, in Louisiana, where the school was, I believe it was Louisiana, an inner city school of boys was out of control. The boys were violent. They weren't studying. The school was terrible. It was dangerous. Forty dads got together and said, we're tired of that. Yes. So what they did is one man took a day, walked the halls. He didn't say anything. Then the next day, another dad walked the halls. And many of them were (laughs) African-American, big, strong guys. Guess what happened to all the violence in the school? It plummeted. Because there was a male presence. It's almost like little testosterone has to bang up yeah. against big testosterone to say, get in your place, kid. You can't do that. You know, I'm no. not going to, but it's hard for a mother to do. And again, feminism has said, no, 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 that's not true, but we know it is true. So just live in your role and enjoy it. Well, since you brought up school, let me end with this. And I know it's controversial. I have said from the pulpit of the church I just served many, many times the last 18, 24 months, get your kids out of public school. And I have friends that are public school teachers, and they're not very happy with me. And I don't mean it to be unkind, but the indoctrination levels, and even that caveat, private Christian schools may not be any better. You have to take the ownership, especially these young moms and dads, 
you really have to be involved with well, I'm telling you my opinion, homeschool tutorial something. Where are you on this if you're if you're comfortable responding? Oh, of course. Uh, ask me any question. You know, <laughs> at some age, you go, I don't care. I'm, I'm, I'm going to take on the tough stuff. There's no question I won't answer. You know, when I was, that's the beauty of getting older. Amen. Fire me. <laughs> you know, I don't care. You know, American Academy of Pediatrics comes after you and says, if you oh. say these things about COVID, we're going to yank your license. Fine, but I'm going to say them anyway. <laughs> Here's where I land on that, because I review a lot of school curricula, in particular sex ed curricula, which is very interesting. The federal guidelines, their federal and state guidelines, are a little bit different. The states are a little bit different in each state. If parents could read all of those, their hairs would stand up on the back yeah. of their necks. And I would encourage them to go to their state national education NESA, I can't remember, anyway, and to look up what the guidelines for sex ed education in their school are, and they're extraordinary. Now, in some schools, in some public schools, teachers will take that and run with it. In other schools, say you have a Christian teacher in a public school, they will try very hard to avoid it. However, their hands are tied. And if they're in a liberal school district, even though they're a Christian, there are things that they have to teach. And there are things I would never, ever want my kids to hear. Personally, I would not send my child to a public school now. I would rather homeschool them. And I'd send them to Christian school, but I would want to see what the curricula yeah. are that the teachers are teaching. It's not that you have bad teachers. It's a political thing. Yes. You know, a few people at the top of the education pyramid are spilling down this stuff, this, you know, woke stuff that says, you know, we need to affirm. Again, it goes back to that pleasing kids. This is what we need to do to please our kids. Tell them all this stuff because they need to know it and, you know, and, and gender affirm and this kind of thing. So parents, if your kid's in the public school, you have to be on the ball. You need to know what's in your kid's books. You need to know what the teachers are telling them in school. And you need to ask your kids questions. Even if they have Christian teachers, sometimes their hands are tied. Dr. Meg Meeker, author of seven books, will have all the information in the show notes, as always, in the program. I would encourage you, especially dads, the Strong Daughter, Strong Father's book was really important to me. My daughters were older when Meg published the book, but it reinforced a lot of things and also gave me some course calibration on, on how I Think about them as young adults now. Love, love, love you and your work and uh, greet your husband for me. Just pray God's great blessing on you as you continue helping parents and kids with this next decade and two and three of generations. We're we're in a mess, Meg, and we need people like you <laughs> we that'll are, help. <laughs> but 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 our kids but our kids need people to fight for them. And that's exactly what I'm doing because kids can't, they don't know enough to speak for themselves, particularly this transgender stuff. They don't know enough to speak. So that's why we need to stay in there and fight for them, but also encourage parents, you know, trust your instincts. If your instincts are saying, no, I don't want my kid with that teacher, take them out of the school, you know, do what you need to do. And, and I also wanted to just, you know, let dads know, go to my website and I am beginning to do some online coaching with dads and groups of dads which is so fun. Fantastic. Just talking, just doing what you and I did here. Yep. You know, my kid wants to this. What in the world do I do? <laughs> so, yeah. Well, as always, all the information in the show notes. Again, thanks, Dr. Meeker, and we look forward to the next time we can get you on the broadcast. 
Did you know that In Context is fully funded by our listeners like you? If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is produced by Hannah Seymour, mixed and mastered by Sonamorphic, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters. 